0: to cows and monologue in this episode we're going to be discussing the Babylon 5 season 5 episode day of the dead the uh first episode since what season two midway through season two to not be written by jms himself this is in actual fact uh written by the acclaimed british author neil gaiman uh neil gaiman is well known for many 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 things uh, uh probably most nowadays Good Omens that he co-wrote with Terry Pratchett, but I mainly know him as the guy who wrote Sandman uh, for Vertigo, uh, the uh, adult imprint of DC Comics back in the 90s. Excellent, excellent comic. Uh, but uh, what, what what's interesting about this episode in particular is that it's got all the hallmarks that signify it's Neil Gaiman. Um, it's relatively low key. Uh, it uses a vague, mystical thing to kickstart the 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 main story. Uh, and the that mystical thing isn't explained. It's there as a mystery, and it's left mysteriousness. There's enough for and against whether this day of the dead thing was a real mystical power or what have you, or some sort of sciencey mumbo jumbo. At the end of the day it doesn't really matter and this also has no plot now this is a very technical writing definition and a lot of people don't understand the difference between story and plot a story is a character wants something something gets in the way creating conflict the story is them overcoming the conflict to get what they want plot is x thing happened to x thing Plot of Babylon 5, uh, at least the Shadow War section, is two ancient beings are warring uh, uh, with the lesser races, using them as pawns as a big old game of parenthood. That's the plot of B5. Story is much more character-oriented. This episode has no plot. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Matter of fact, that's a very Neil Gaiman thing. Neil Gaiman stuff, often really, the plot is barely there. It's more an excuse to continue character interaction. So this Day of the Dead thing is just a framing device to get the characters talking, get them moving, and uh, the the biggest quote-unquote issue they come across in the plot is how to contact the rest of the station which is solved within five minutes near the end of the episode and it's literally no oh everything's fine bye because once again neil gaiman's writing style is no plot only story and what what's so special about this episode uh is that it brings back a lot of old characters that are long dead hence the name uh, and is deeply, deeply character-driven. And I'm not saying B5 was never character-driven because it's always been deeply character-driven. But this is very much Neil Gaiman style of just having two characters sitting down, talking, nothing else going on. G- good example, uh, I-, I think, is that... I don't remember the exact issue, but it's the Sandman issue where Morpheus, Dream, and his sister, Death, uh, make a deal with this guy uh, in early, like, uh, medieval times, uh, England, uh, that we they will forego his death uh, by another hundred years. And, and they'll meet at this exact spot every few hundred years to talk. And maybe then he'll be ready to die. And that's the framing device. And the issue goes on and on and on and on. And you realize that the story isn't about someone cheating death. That's just an excuse. The The story is about a friendship. A friendship that is born out of a strange circumstance. And two people who have lived very long lives. Two people who have experienced much pain. Uh, and have come to understand each other. Uh, it's a fantastic issue. Um, but that that's essentially what we have here. Is Each character gets paired with someone that is indicative of... Where their overall arc is or is going, Londo gets paired, uh, you know, with a Naturally, Londo is heading towards a place he's not comfortable with. Matter of fact, he jokes that he wants to talk to the first emperor to understand, you know, maybe, maybe he can make this emperor thing work. He know he he knows deep down that being emperor is nothing but a joke. Uh that he views this as useless. Yeah, his entire job is useless and so uh him uh meaning sort of reaffirms that at the end of the day no matter where he's going no matter how useless he feels there were people and there are people who do care about him uh and it's the reaffirmation of him as a person that for all the mistakes he's made uh there's some light at the end of the tunnel Uh, Which, of course, is key to his redemption, uh, as we saw in War Without End. And I also love that line, I killed the man that killed you, but it didn't bring you back. What's wonderful about that is he's not saying that as a... um, Uh, a literal sense of it didn't bring you back, (laughs) of course killing that person would not bring back a dead person, what he's saying is that bit of his heart that truly cared about her had extinguished that day and killing Morden didn't do a damn thing it didn't solve it at all Uh, and he wishes to God he could have fixed it but he can't that is, the tragedy of Londo as a character is that he is cursed, effectively. That he is forever going to be living out his life for one little mistake and suffering for it. Dodger appears to Garibaldi. Uh, Dodger is this character that came from a, a certain time frame in Garibaldi's life. Garibaldi was in a transition. He had just been shot in the back. Uh, he was recovering from that, uh, in the, that, that deep... Paranoia that came from that, and the, the the hell that he was about to go through had not happened yet. But he already felt like he had gone through hell, and Dodger was uh, came to him and offered, you know, uh, get out of jail free, uh, comfort, no th- no thought about it, just pure mindless good feeling, and that's not what he's at anymore. Now he's got a. Relatively good relationship with Lee's. He's trying to put his life back together after what happened, uh, and he is no longer because he used to be a groppo, much like uh, a Dodger. He is no longer the nameless soldier that's going to be shot and die on the battlefield, and no one will give a damn. Now he has someone to care about him. Strings have to be attached. Uh, and so he's sort of seeing his past self and go, Wow, I was naive back then. I thought I had went through all the worst stuff, but in actuality I not. Uh, and that sort of back and forth leads to him realizing just how much he truly, truly loves Lise so much. And then Lockley gets Zoe. Uh, what, what's great about this is that we get some luckily backstory, obviously, but it's also very interesting <laughs> Zoe being a um uh so sort of a uh, homeless drug addict, and so was Lockley back in the day uh and there's this undertone that they were best friends, but perhaps something more uh I think there's an inherent sort of gay subtext there. Ah, uh, the speed of the '90s uh, may not have been able to say a whole lot, especially with the the Talia and Ivanova stuff. Uh, all the the ways that they had to, you know, skirt around that. Uh, so, but there's that underlying feeling of that. But overall, that is a very, very dark thing, even for this show, as dark as it gets. Having a drug addict who willingly committed suicide by overdosing. Uh, And that kickstarting Lockley's behavior of why she's so military, why she's so rigid, why she is so so insanely uh, by the book uh, is because she spent a time in her life, you know, trailblazing, being a rebellious uh, teenager, and she saw what that life got her. Her best friend dead by her own hand, too so what's the point point? and this will feed in later as we find out more and more about her past specifically her father uh, but this also ties into what I was saying last time about uh, Garibaldi and Lockley sort of uh, being very similar to each other we now know Lockley has a demon in her past a drug addiction that she is fighting much like Garibaldi has an alcohol addiction and they are both Very regimental people because of that inherent addiction, that addictive personality you have to be. You have to have constant self-control as someone with an addiction. Then Morden appears to Lanier. What's interesting about this is that ultimately, Morden appears to Lanier because this is a similar direction he's going in. What Lanier is doing, he is hiding behind the Adla Shock as a good, noble, pure thing, but in actuality, it is nothing but pretense to trying to win the heart of Delenn and be the ultimate good, savior guy, Lancelot story. Never ends well, of course. Uh, And, well, that's sort of like Morden. He he keeps making deals with people, uh, deals that they come to regret, uh, that they think they're doing the right thing at the right time, but in actuality they're making the wrong decisions. And I love that little joke uh, that Morden believes he was just trying to make people happy. Huh. And, I, and I like how effectively Lanier is seeing that his path is no better than what Morden has done the entire time and the, what he claims to have fought against and what the Unlashark stand for, he's heading towards. And he needs the course correct. And of course, he refuses to listen. And I think there's an irony there, he's the only one that actively goes to the Day of the Dead to find someone, to talk to one of the dead people. Everybody else, it's happenstance. For Lanier, it was intentional, and of course he got, (laughs) you know, Morden. Um, And what's interesting is, I kind of feel sorry for Neil Gaiman Uh, This happens multiple times, I've noticed. Neil Gaiman, often, because he's such a well-known writer, a lot of shows uh, will, like, ask for him to write for them. Uh, That was the case here, and then, of course, he's always wanted to write Doctor Who. He's written a couple Doctor Who episodes. Uh, In a fantastic episode of Doctor Who... The TARDIS comes alive, gets a body, and there's a lot of fun interplay between the Doctor and the TARDIS, and it's really good. But there's an ultimate issue with it, uh, in that it it's very clear at the end there was bits not written by Gaiman just to set up the future plot points of that season. of uh, The only water in the forest is the river. Blah, 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 blah. Here uh you have morden telling Lanier. oh by the way uh you're gonna betray the the shock and everything you stand for setting up uh something that Lanier may or may not do in the future as i said his path is not perfect and also obligatorily just like the only water in the forest is the river uh is that a line from that we don't see filmed but instead another character tells the main character just like Rory tells the Doctor, of, oh, by the way, Kosh said, you know, uh, when the limelight comes, return to the end of the beginning. Uh, I kind of feel sorry for him that all of this stuff kind of gets shoved into his face, where he gets a relatively standalone episode uh, that is quite good on its own, but because it's part of an overarching narrative, uh, and is kind of incompatible with a lot of that stuff, because of his writing style, uh, that uh, ultimately the showrunner has to force in these connectors uh, that aren't technically obtrusive, they're just obvious uh, and kind of on the nose. Uh, I like how Londo is really the only one that actually really enjoys uh, talking to his dead companion, you know, uh, uh, for a while Garibaldi's annoyed, uh, it stirs up a lot of emotions, uh, for Lockley, uh, things that she didn't want to think about ever again, and for a Lanier, obviously, he didn't want to deal with Morden to begin with. Uh, it's very Londo to enjoy that. I like, uh, th- this is really a subplot of it, but I love how Rebo and Zudi are introduced here. They're, of course, played by the comedy magician duo Penn and Teller, um, originally, uh, Zudi has lines uh, he had lines in the original script this was before they cast pin and teller to keep the stage performance of pin and teller if you don't know uh, teller the irony of his joke is uh, in his name is he doesn't talk that's uh, that's part of the the repartee between pin and teller and so in order to keep that stage presence uh, you know that performance narrative about them, they introduce the idea of the machine that talks for Zooty. So Zooty doesn't actually ever have to talk, and so Teller doesn't have to break character, uh, you know, as Teller guest starring as Zooty. I thought that was pretty cool. But I one thing I really like is their entire subplot about how they feel useless now. That effectively, because of everything that's happened, from the Clark regime to the ISA to the Shadow War and all this stuff, they feel like, uh, effectively, uh, that comedy doesn't mean what it used to mean. Uh, that comedy, ultimately, um, is telling the truth in a comedic way, in a funny way. So you shed light on it, and you make fun of it, but you also call attention to it. Uh, but now people are using comedy as an escape mechanism from all the horrors of the world, and they're not being taken seriously. So when Ribo and Zudi try and draw the attention to real political issues, they're being ignored. And they want to give up comedy and go into politics, because uh, they believe that, uh, that is the only way to, for people to start taking them seriously. What's interesting is nowadays that, you know, that this was the 90s. In today's world, I've seen this sentiment a lot from entertainers. And it's really fascinating to watch how the entertainment world reacts to various political upheavals that happen throughout history. Because ultimately, art is political. Uh, it is a statement of truth, whether philosophical, political, morally, whatever. Uh, it is an allegory for our world through the lens of fiction that is the point of all art Uh, is to shed light and show the truth in a lie effectively and especially nowadays like comedians are doing the jobs of journalists look at uh you know someone like john oliver or someone like that ultimately a comedian tries to present things in the comedic value style and they will go on and on about how Uh, They're not a journalist, they're not a journalist, but yet they're doing more hard-hitting political journalism than most journalists. Uh, We live in a topsy-turvy world where now comedians are more trustworthy. Uh, Isn't that an interesting world we live in? Uh, In how actors and writers are actively giving up their entertainment to go and do an, an outright state political opinions, and, uh, and as the political gulf becomes even more divided, as uh, uh, the world we live in seems to be incredibly radicalized towards one side or the other, um, I've noticed that art became more blatant about its politics, which is not a problem. It is simply trying to draw the line in the sand of where things are located instead of trying to present an allegory and change hearts and minds instead it's trying to flag wave so this entire sentiment from Rebo and I not only do I understand but I've seen it in real life uh and I find it interesting because in my opinion they would be best served and this is the way Sheridan and Adelin put it by staying in comedy Because of the comedic lens of their work, they were able to get around the Clark regime's censors and say stuff that no one else was willing to say or was able to say within that time frame. So the guise of entertainment as nothing but silly fluff, as comedy, something to be laughed at, can tell more truth than the real truth-teller only issue I really have with uh, this episode, I think, is Trakar's entire bit. Trakar is a deeply spiritual man, so I can understand him being uneasy with the Day of the Dead thing. Um, but the fact that he is just kind of very much against it the entire time, and at the end turns around and goes, oh, well, I should have experienced it. That's not necessarily out of character for Trakar. I just don't think it's right. I think if we had been able to see him experience it, I think we would have had a more underst- uh, a gentle, or, or sort of more interesting understanding of why he was against the Day of the Dead. Just having him show up for a couple scenes to go, you don't understand what you're doing. uh, You know, uh, and we shouldn't be doing this to suddenly, ah, I heard some really good things. I should try it sometime. That doesn't really gel with me I, he's a very spiritual man he is a priest in many many ways especially since uh, the way his arc has been heading since season three so I think he him participating in it would have been more interesting uh, but maybe it was cut for time or uh, and, and then that's why they 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 did it the way they did who knows Um, I just think it is not that great of an excuse for him not to participate in the Day of the Dead. I know people have, um, just going back to Rebo and Zooty real quick, people have talked about that last line of because it tells me to, um, with Zooty. And I'm like, oh, it's a keeper! It's gotta be a keeper! No, I don't understand this. It's the kind of fan theories that drive me fucking insane. Um believe me there's a lot more that make me bang my head against the wall when it comes to comics or Witcher or what have you Uh, this one is one of the minor ones that just goes like why it's very clearly a metaphor and it's very clearly dumb if it was a keeper like yeah that exists in this world but it wouldn't let him say that outright regardless he's not drunk uh, which is the only thing we know that can deal with a Keeper. Uh, and, well, it just makes no sense. It being a metaphor that the machine essentially allows him to hide behind that comedic side, that because Zooty does not talk, the machine talks for him, that allows his heart to do the talking through the machine. And so he, the the perpetual comedian who doesn't talk who is always funny and doing these weird gags cannot sort of uh, can basically be seen as of the buffoon cannot be taken seriously but whenever the machine talks maybe just maybe what he's saying comes directly from him because it tells me to it's what my heart wants the heart wants what the heart wants and a large part of Babylon 5's theme is following your heart that's A message that is repeatedly talked about, especially with Delenn. Uh, So I'm baffled how people can miss that very blatant metaphor and go, it's a keeper. That's not in keeping with Neil Gaiman's writing style. It's not keeping in with JMS's writing style. And and from a plot perspective, it just doesn't make any sense. Once again, fan theories are at times head-scratching or make you want to hit your head on a wall because they are so dumb. But other than that, this was a really tight uh, and good episode. It's a classic Neil Gaiman, no plot, only character, only story, Uh, and there's a lot of nice callbacks, of course, with Dira from season one, and Dodger from season two, and all all this continuity stuff coming back to uh sort of talk about certain things and i also like how uh it kind of ends on the the joke that the mystery is never solved and it doesn't need to be solved because maybe we need a little mystery in our lives and also luckily going well i need to learn i I thought it was a metaphor i guess i need to learn to start thinking taking things a bit more literally here on B 5 it's also a nice little acknowledgement of how many uh sort of predictions and metaphors uh, that were said in the early seasons came to be a you know, true, like the shadows, the shadows, they come for us all, you know, watch out for the shadows, you know, stuff like that. Uh, It was, it's very classic Neil Gaiman, very well done, uh, and is the only episode uh, since season 2 to have not be written by JMS himself, uh, and is the only one of season 5 not written by JMS. Uh, which I think is quite interesting, that, uh, he admitted that he found it hard to partition out bits of his ongoing story to other writers, you know, um... Large writing rooms for serialized narratives weren't really a thing in America at the time, so no one had taught him that skill, and it was hard for him, so he just took upon all responsibility for himself, but he had befriended Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman liked the show, so he let Neil Gaiman do this, especially because, as I mentioned, because of the season 4 crunch, there was some time to fill in season 5 to fill out that full 22 episode gap, uh, and that's why we have we've had some single episodes like a view from the gallery and now this uh and i think it's a very very strong classic neil gaiman uh and i shall see you next time until then bye